I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. This week, we're going to do another Socialism 101 episode prompted by some good conversations on Twitter, just talking about some basic terms. What the heck's capitalism? What's socialism? What's communism? Those three specifically <laughs> we're going to talk about. Uh, I think it's a good idea to do a little bit of this in part because it's important to kind of revisit these basics um, and also because Matt's coming here really soon. We don't have time to read a whole book. Really hard to read a whole book right now. <laughs> but next next week, though, the episode will be live with us in the same room together. So that'd be live, good. but later for you live. It's it's always live for us, but it'll be more live in that one situation. <laughs> <laughs> more live double live <laughs> cool uh before we do that though i think um we're gonna carry on the tradition that we've now started since 100 and um taking taking the questions from the people who really need answers um and those people are from the christianity subreddit so uh dean i think that uh you've pulled out three more really pressing issues we need to address this week could you just kind of uh how about how about you you kind of can set them up and then I'll spike them into the net of uh scoring for the kingdom of god or something. Yeah, that's good but don't spike them into the net because we will lose points. Spiking them over the net into the sand. <laughs> I don't know how to play volleyball. That's fine. Uh, I only know it because I live by the beach. All right. Uh so first question here. Is it fine to have halloween decorations inside your house as long as it's not a jack-o'-lantern and this is posted 24 days ago so uh just thinking really far after, ahead right now after halloween though <laughs> or before halloween it depends on it depends on what what side of the year you're thinking about uh all right here, here's how they uh they expand a bit i don't celebrate halloween good start and i remember being taught in church it's not good to have a jack-o'-lantern but i forgot the reason to be honest <laughs> i know it's not good to dress up during that time as well is it fine to have other decorations inside your house, though? I kind of like the purple, orange, and green decorations and the fake ghosts with googly eye decorations. Is it fine to have those up or nothing at all during Halloween? I know this <laughs> Halloween is far away, but I wanted to be sure ahead of time. Yeah. Wow, that's a really good question. Um, it's one that I struggle with probably every Halloween as well. Um, huh, so why, what's wrong with jack-o'-lanterns, though? Like, why are those bad specifically? I mean, the googly eye ghosts, obviously are fine but why the jack lanterns clearly uh yeah i mean jack lanterns are uh, uniquely evil and that's really the the mystery here they they know they know there is a reason they just forgot uh <laughs> so they've come come for the help i appreciate that level of honesty of like i know they're bad but i don't remember why <laughs> <laughs> so um, okay i think jack lantern is okay to have inside your house if it's got a crucifix on it hmm it can't uh, be on the like... same wall as your katana still, but if it was <laughs> a jack-o'-lantern with a crucifix, I think it might be fine. Yeah, right. Uh, let me think, though. I don't know. There's got to be some historical reason for why you shouldn't have them in your house. I feel. I, I guess I sort of feel like the questioner. There's got to be some reason for this prohibition. The the prohibition of, of among all Christians. You wouldn't want to have a jack-o'-lantern in your house because it'd get all mushy and smelly real quick, you know? 
<laughs> that's true I, I i don't know though i think it's it's important to ask this question because uh you know people try to find the unity underneath all the various kinds of christianities and i mean there's creeds there's uh there's different ideas about baptism all that kind of thing that separate us but the one thing that just unifies every christian is this very prohibition i think <laughs> yeah that is true um hey what <laughs> there's a lot of good uh, i got a lot of good responses to this but um there's one that's my favorite <laughs> It's a little bit down the page, and it just says, oh, man, we did a podcast series on this. I highly encourage you to give it a listen. <laughs> and uh, this is a podcast. I'm not going to say the name of this podcast, because I don't want to advertise somebody else on our show unless they're going to pay us. Um, but it's called uh, – the name of the podcast just is Should Christians Celebrate Halloween? And um, uh, they think that it's complicated. It's something you could do an entire episode on, but there you go. <laughs> That's true. But we all, we've only got a couple of minutes. Um, I'm trying to think if we can come up with just one really good reason, though. To not have it. Or to have yeah, it. Yeah, to not have it. To For sure not. For sure definitely not have it. Did, uh, when when you were kind of being evangelical, was it um, important to you not to have Halloween? Uh, in reality, no, it wasn't. But I did have friends who were not allowed to trick-or-treat. Really? In their life. Man. Yeah. That's wild. It is wild. Huge bummer huge bummer how, where are you gonna get candy from that's the real question uh houses with jack-o'-lanterns that's that's where <laughs> all right here's the question is this sorcery or whatever now here's the the expansion i'm probably being a warrior about this but you know how when you were a kid you would take someone's hands and tickle every finger and you would rub them which one hurt or tickle the most <laughs> and they would tell you to think of a star, square, or circle, then they would rub your finger and you could see the shape. Is that sorcery or witchery or whatever? Or am I just overthinking it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> picture this. You're a kid. And, so, and someone... <laughs> they're rubbing someone. your fingers. <laughs> uh, an adult, a friend... Uh, a classmate, who knows? They're rubbing your fingers. They're giving giving your fingers that good little that good little tickle. Every single finger, they're not gonna miss even one of them, and um, and you have to tell them which one hurts or tickles the most. <laughs> and then they're like, okay. what, a, "What a spectrum of experience!" <laughs> now that we've established which one tickles or hurts the most, I want you to think of a star, a square, or a circle. Okay, but then this person, they're gonna rub your other finger. And then you can see that shape. <laughs> all right. So that's, I mean, okay. It doesn't need to be explained anymore than that. We've all had that experience. We have that friend in our life that's going to like come and tickle right. your fingers. Yeah. But the question is, is that, is it witchcraft, sorcery, or whatever, though? Now, that's the real, that's the real question behind it. Because you do see yeah. the shape and your fingers are hurting. But is right. it witchcraft? So has, has the shape been conjured? Yeah. Using the dark arts? Yeah. Um, I'm going to go out here and say that, yes, um, if they're rubbing your fingers and then you're seeing the shape, that is definitely witchcraft. It's definitely, I mean, there's, it's got all the components of a spell. It does. It does. You got, I guess the, the, uh, the reagent here is just the, the hand itself. That's right. And then the tickle is the magic. That's how you know that it's happening. Right. Or the hurting. That's how you know if it's dark or light sorcery or witchery. (laughs) That seems to make sense to me <laughs> this also sounds like uh the pg version of a saw movie <laughs> how do you tickle someone's fingers is my big question here <laughs> uh well you've got to be good at drawing those shapes i guess that's really where it comes down to hmm. i don't know it's very confusing to me a star square circle is it, I, like okay there is kid lore there is a weird, mysterious uh, world of kid mythology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it gets passed down from kid to kid on playgrounds. Uh, and this is, a, this is a true thing. It's, like, really bizarre. Like, I feel like uh, a lot of kids have the same kind of weird rhymes or whatever. And I remember, like, other kids teaching me, but nobody else. Like, just kids telling you stuff. Did uh, anyone ever do this to you when you were a kid? Is this something no, that's not, actually real? It can't not be real, this, right? Not this in particular, but, like, things like it, for sure. Mm. Just weird things. Like, uh... Dang, I can't remember this one, but there's one where you like move your hand around in a circle and you move your other hand around like in the opposite direction of a circle or something and then you like can't move them. 
Oh right. Want to afterwards? I don't know. I don't know all the all the ins and outs, but it is sorcery or witchery or whatever. It's the same category. You ever do that thing where like you stand in a doorway and you press your arms on both sides of the doorway really hard, and then your arms just like magically float up? That is sorcery, obviously. Clearly, the door spirits get real mad at you for that one. (laughs) They get riled right up, and then they rile your arms up. (laughs) Okay, cool. What's the next question? (laughs) I think we've I think we've done this one. It's sorcery. It's sorcery, not witchery, uh, and not whatever. Definitely sorcery. For sure. <clears throat> All right, well, uh, we're going to take a, a dark turn here just for this last one. Uh, the question is, uh, should Christians drink monster energy drinks? Sounds innocent enough, but just wait. Uh, this person says, I could use y'all's advice on this. Do y'all believe? <laughs> Saying y'all is so bad because I'm from northern Michigan and I obviously am not. It's not an natural thing for me. Do y'all believe that Monster Energy Drinks is a satanic company or that Christians should not drink these drinks because of what they represent or stand for? I've heard several different viewpoints and theories on what the meaning is behind the symbol and phrases displayed on the Monster Energy can, some of which are that the symbol is actually the same symbol, the Hebrew symbol for the number six, displayed three separate times, and that it is actually the devil's number, and that the phrase unleash unleash the beast displayed on the can both have hidden satanic meanings conversely those who do not believe that there is anything below the surface of this claim uh say that it is just advertising a claw mark for the symbol and that unleash the beast is just a reference to the title of the drink of monster in general well i'm glad we got the skeptics view here uh <laughs> so i've gone fair, back and fair forth. and balanced reporting right here <laughs> fair and balanced no spin zone i've gone back and forth on the issue over the years and i'm still on the fence as to what i believe when it comes to this issue no help from monster <laughs> energy drink inc as they refuse to answer or weigh in on the discussion <laughs> regarding this topic so i'm left to refer to fellow christians what are y'all's opinions and what does your heart tell you when it comes to this so Matt, yeah. I just want you to examine your heart here for a moment. From my heart perspective, I'm gonna go out here and say that yeah, monster energy drinks are probably demonic, and you shouldn't drink them. Christians shouldn't. I mean, uh, heathens go for it, I suppose, but uh, Christians should avoid it. Or maybe Christians should uh, have monster energy drinks because we're the only ones who will never unleash the beast. Okay, so it's like you could, Christians could drink it. But since we're uh, because we're saved, though, it won't really get us, you know. Yeah, we'll keep the beast leashed, as it were. It's like you would... okay. So a regular person, uh, one yeah. a, a non-Christian, a civilian, if you will, <laughs> a civilian, <laughs> not in this, uh, not in this raging war between uh, God and the devil. Uh, they yeah, drink not, not, doesn't it has never even read this present darkness. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they drink this big, uh, this big tall can of uh, monster stuff, and they get possessed by a demon. They the beast is unleashed in them in their hearts and lives. Yeah, that's right. They have no no leash on their beasts. And I think that's actually one reason that Christians might consider drinking it, specifically to keep the beast leashed. For every non-Christian that drinks it, there's a chance that the beast gets unleashed. So what I hear you saying is that Christians, not only should they drink it, but it is a moral imperative because they're the only people that can keep that beast leashed. Exactly. And I think that's also why Monster Energy uh, Inc. refuses to answer this question to someone they know who is a, uh, a Christian. Yeah. Because I don't want to let that out. Yeah. Oh, man, here's a coincidence I didn't even know. The the asker of this question is literally named Civilian Has Questions. <gasps> well, that is not a joke. Um, hey, do you think that this is why evangelicals do so many lock-ins? <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's why. It's uh, like you got to uh, get the teens <laughs> to stay up all night, and then you give them this, <laughs> this big monster drink, and then they drink it all up so their friends can't. Just to keep the beast at bay a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Uh, also, this is the premise for my new uh, my new energy drink, um, uh, a- Angel Angel Naptime Drinks, uh, Leash the Beast. <laughs> it's got CBD in it, and it's uh, just for <laughs> angelic boys to take naps with. <laughs> and angelic girls and uh, angelic non-binary people. We're not, uh, you know, we're a progressive, progressive Christian company here. Yeah, absolutely. Church clarity score, clear and affirming. Hang on, I'm going to Google Christian energy drink really quick. Oh, no. <laughs> You're about to unleash the beast for sure. Uh, it's so hard because um, almost all of the all of the search results are, are about monster energy drink. <laughs> uh, the first one when I type it in is from Desiring God, and it's just, should energy drinks fuel the Christian life? We need to get back on the Ask a Pastor train, but only ask this question over and over. Hey, I don't think there are any Christian energy drinks out there. What would you name your Christian energy drink? 
Oh boy, uh, Pentecost. Ooh, that's a good one. No, I don't have one. So there you go. That's what it is. <laughs> uh, J- John, John the Baptist, extreme soda. <laughs> now with locusts. <laughs> it's. <laughs> yep. Okay, that's what it is. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, all right. We have to put this Reddit stuff to bed. Um, maybe we'll come back to this some other some other time. But I just felt like these uh, these questions were hanging around, and I felt like we should get them out. <laughs> some one, episode one hundred leftovers. Yeah, it seems good. Um, I'm glad. I I don't know. We so the moral of the story is: please, Christians, get out there and drink all of the monster you can, so your friends don't. So we keep this beast just locked up tight. <laughs> keep that beast locked up tight. That's right. Uh, but you know what beast you're not going to keep locked up tight? Uh, the beast of all of us on Twitter, um, <laughs> making <laughs> making uh, wildly different <laughs> statements about what socialism is. Oh boy, I'm glad that we finally got around to a really bad segue. It's been a while. We've been we've been doing a good job, and uh, now we're finally back on brand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I don't know if you, if you all were on Twitter this past week. Hey, maybe you weren't. Maybe you're off Twitter for Lent, and that's good. I hope you stay off good it job. forever. <laughs> um, uh, one of one of uh, my favorite magnificent guests, Katie Grimes, asked. Uh, all of her followers some like really big political questions about like what words even mean and uh <laughs> so, sometimes people do that and it's kind of like it can be kind of like frustrating but uh katie katie is good and smart and when she does it it's okay with me and i like it a lot um <laughs> <laughs> so it but it makes sense though so katie uh, is kind of like responding to this thing um uh alexandria ocasio-cortez is very popular and Bernie Sanders is very popular and people like socialism again. And she's like, okay, but like a lot of the problems with socialism just come up when people don't know what socialism even means or what capitalism even means or like why these things are contentious terms. So she just asked all of her followers, what do these words mean? And boy, were there ever a lot of weird ones. Yeah, there were, um, a lot of, um, a lot of things about the government doing more things and uh, being more socialist because of it. A lot of um, <laughs> a really annoying Marxist like me telling her <laughs> what the real answer is. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of other people from just in between. Uh, <laughs> so those are the two camps uh, that exist on Twitter. Uh, but anyways, Katie Grimes, uh, she asked this question. It seems to me that discussions about socialism are often unproductive because people have wildly different definitions of the term. So out of curiosity, how do you understand the word socialism? That's a good question. Um, it is. Um, yeah. It's so if you, one. yeah, for sure. It's, it's kind of like, uh, if we don't know the answer to this, it's kind of, uh, this whole, this whole show's over. Um, <laughs> so if you're involved in the online discourse, it seems like Katie's question is actually a good one. Is socialism the workers owning the means of production or is it when the government does things and the more the government does, the more socialist it is to get to the bottom of these questions. It's time for another socialism 101 episode. You've been waiting since like episode 50, probably for one of these. Um, <laughs> so in this episode, we'll work through some of the big contentious ideas surrounding how people define terms like socialism, capitalism, and communism, and maybe something else. Who knows? It could go anywhere at this point. I feel like we should start with capitalism just because that's the place we find ourselves now. And then maybe we could talk after that about different strategies of how to get someplace else. Does that well, sound good? Yeah, it seems really important to actually start with capitalism because, um, I don't know, socialism is something that we think of in distinction to capitalism. So I guess before we can right. talk about what socialism is, we probably have to figure out what capitalism is. Yeah. All right. So I tried my hand at uh, responding to Katie's tweet. Here's what I came up with. Uh, so I said, capitalism is a web of property and productive relations, where the means of producing and the value produced by them are privately owned and labor is sold for a wage. I thought very hard about it while I was sitting on my couch in the morning. <laughs> it's a pretty good definition, I think. I like, I'll, okay, I'll tell you the things I like about it. I'm just going to, I'll be real <laughs> with you. Capitalism is a web of property relations. That it's like oh, it's not just like one type of property relations, but it's a bunch of different types kind of grumped together. Um, so there you go. It's more than just like uh, you know a factory owner or something, but there's lots of different types of property that people come to own that um, I think exploit people in very unique ways. Yeah, I think that's the biggest piece actually, because a lot of people see capitalism as, or they reduce capitalism to sort of one thing, and it, that one thing differs uh, depending on who's reducing it, I guess. 
Um, but the most powerful criticisms of capitalism, I think, are the ones that see it as kind of like uh, an aggregate result of a lot of things at once um, that kind of keep cooperating, uh, but also mutating and morphing and changing uh, in such a way that certain people stay in power and certain people are uh, uh, not allowed um, to have collective property or, or uh, have to sort of be compelled to sell their labor to other people. So we'll talk more about all of that. Um, but I think that's just the big thing is that capitalism. So a lot of things working uh, at the same time, not necessarily working together. Sometimes they're antagonizing one another, but uh, all, all kind of uh, it's the result of a multitude of things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, it's also uh, another part of of your definition that you gave that I think is essential is that uh, labor is sold for a wage, that wage labor is like, you know, one of the defining features of capitalism. But um, even though like, um, even though there's like some forms of labor in the contemporary sort of political economy that are, um, you know, they are for a wage, but the wage looks different. It still doesn't mean that like, I mean, it still means that it's capitalism, right? Like even if you're working on like, uh, I don't know, uh, Amazon's Mechanical Turk or something, and you get paid like less than a minimum wage for these like microtransactions. It's still like the selling of your labor time uh, for a wage. Yeah. Uh, so let's start maybe trying to like work this out and and breaking it down a little more uh, by going to my favorite guy who talks about capitalism. And that is Karl Marx. Um, so I was revisiting Capital, which is a really long uh, but very fun book to read. Uh, the Marx wrote. If you don't know what Capital is, it's a book that he wrote to try to sort of um, piece together the different parts of capitalism's political economy. And it's in a couple of volumes. The first one is finished and the other ones are sort of more or less finished. Um, but in any case, in the first volume, um, it's really fascinating because Marx actually starts talking about capitalism, not by saying, hey, here's what capitalism is, but actually by talking about commodities. Um, so the first chapter and the first kind of section is all about what commodities are, uh, how they work, and what they sort of mean in, in our life in a capitalist economy. I think this is really an in interesting, instructive moment because you might say, like, that's really frustrating because he doesn't just sort of give it to you. But the reason is that he just sort of picks something that's already happening within capitalism and jumps in. He could start in a number of places. So he just kind of like... It's like, well, I'm going to start at commodities and kind of work out from there. And I think the reason for that is that capitalism, like we were just saying, isn't just sort of one thing, but a way of organizing relationships between people and things in such a way that private owners of capital are able to retain and grow the capital that they have at the expense of other people who don't have capital. Um, so that's kind of where I would start anyway, is sort of where Marx starts, which is to say, uh, you can you can jump into capitalism in a number of ways to try to describe it and how it looks and what it's like to live within it. Um, but the the main feature is that you have to sort of understand it as this uh, um, series of relationships that that emerges. Yeah, and the texture of those relationships are really important too. Um, you know, not not only are those relationships about like are buying and selling, but it's about understanding like how those relationships um, you know, change the um you know, how a worker's life actually looks externally, but also internally. So, uh, you know, capital is something that Marx wrote towards, you know, the later part of his life. But on the other end of the spectrum, <laughs> towards, the, you know, the young Marx, he wrote uh, the Philosophic and Economic Manuscripts of 1844. And he talks a lot about in that one about how um, these specific types of capitalist relationships um, between like the worker and their, pr their product um, causes workers to feel alienated. Um, and that is kind of a big deal too. So not only is it kind of, um, setting up a distinction between like, uh, workers and wages and, uh, the production of commodities, but it also has like a real, um, you know, affective piece about how workers actually feel about their work in a, in a more like maybe contemporary example, like in Sylvia Federici's Wages for Housework, she points out the ways that domestic labor, um, is ingrained into the gender performance of womanhood while producing, um, the type of domestic life necessary to create workers. And, and I guess I, I pull this out and tell and like say it because uh, in the ways that capitalism manages relationships between objects and people and people and people, it also hides the type of labor that goes into making those objects. And I think that's something to mm -hmm. me that is really important in understanding capitalism, that um, it thrives off of buying uh, labor power from people 
um, and paying them a wage for it. But it also like if if everyone was kind of just like <laughs> if it didn't also kind of erase the labor of those people, I think people, you know, like workers wouldn't put up with it in a lot of ways. So capitalism has these relationships with people, but they have these different types of intensity that um, hide some of like the um, really horrible parts of those types of jobs. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and maybe one more sort of theoretical piece to draw from Marx uh, to understand capitalism is just trying to think about the relationship between capitalists as people and a class and uh, the proletariat as people in a class. Um, there are other people in classes in society, but those are the two sort of big ones that Marx and Engels focus on in particular. Um, I think it's actually useful to also talk about that when we talk about capitalism, because that's one of the primary antagonistic relationships is between those two classes. So it helps to understand capitalism as an ism if you can understand the capitalist as an ist, as an individual. So a capitalist is, put simply, I guess, somebody who privately owns capital, owns the means of producing things. So they own a factory or they own the stuff that allows other stuff to get made. Uh, and as a result, they have to, um, or they, uh, they buy the labor of people who are part of the proletariat class who do not own that capital uh, to help them continue to grow their own capital. And then when they have to, they sort of pay out some of that capital as wages to uh, their workers. Um, I think that's also just useful because like you can get lost in tracing all the different relationships that happen in capitalism. And if you read capital, for example, uh, it's very easy to get lost in that book because Marx is trying to uh, nail down a lot of moving parts at once. But uh, just put maybe simply, I think you could say that capitalism is is about uh, helping capitalists retain and grow their capital and also about uh, not extending that capital to uh, everybody collectively in, a, in an equal way. Yeah. Does that seem like a good summary? Yeah, I think so. Um, the, the one other quote I, I wanted to bring up, too, was from Richard Gilman Opolsky, and I think it just kind of ex, uh, echoes what you said. Uh, he has this book called Spectacular Capitalism, um, and he says, uh, in the first uh, just bit of the book, he says uh, about capitalism, however we define capital, the capitalist is in favor of accumulating it not losing it or taking it away. Capitalism, by its own internal logic, is about the accumulation of capital. So, yeah, exactly what you're saying. It's about um, it's about capitalists retaining wealth uh, and not giving it to other people, because that would be kind of counter the point. Um, I guess what I like about this bit here is that um, he recognizes that there's, like, one big rule to capitalism, and that is don't lose the things that you, like, you know, have appropriated from other people. You can't, uh, right. you don't give it away. That's that's the rule, is that you're always trying to get more of that thing. And, right. I, I mean, it seems like a it seems like a really basic understanding, a really basic tenet of capitalism, but what, uh, what I think it starts to add to the conversation is that, like, by this, by this like, very flexible logic of just accumulating more, um, capitalism is like a super flex a super flexible type of political economy like it always knows how to shove itself uh into any kind of given situation by asking the question like how can how can i milk this for all it's worth how can i take all of the money out of this you know given situation how can i use that this um you know whatever new form of technology or new situation to uh wring every last cent out of people who might use it um so it's helpful to me at least to think about capitalism as having like one big internal logic of accumulating capital and then taking that logic and just jamming it wherever it can fit. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of uh, keying in on a sort of central feature of capitalism for sure. Um, It's tough because what this means is you can try your best to sort of summarize all this in a tweet uh, like I tried to do, (laughs) but you always end up sort of losing all these other pieces of it. Um, like the affective piece that you mentioned earlier, Matt, which I think is really important. Um, and I think for a lot of Christians, it's the affective part that actually encourages us to be critical of capitalism first. Uh, at least that was the case with me, like yeah. kind of looking around and being like, wow, uh, this is, this system is really making people uh, feel bad. Like it creates unjust relationships and people feel the weight of it and they suffer under it. And like that just seems intuitively not good. Um, and then maybe you go about looking for how to explain that and you stumble on something like Marxism or, or a number of other anti-capitalist, uh, philosophies to help you explain it. Um, but yeah, uh, I think that you can kind of like come at capitalism in so many different ways. And, uh, the important thing is to just kind of, 
um, key in on some some key figures and what you're just saying about this logic of accumulation is a good one to not lose sight of for sure. Yeah, I mean, and speaking like to the, I guess, more of like the Christian angle of this question, like, okay, I I 100% understand that there are, are Christians in this world who don't agree with our exact take on socialism. <laughs> that's <laughs> really, yeah, surprising, huh? <laughs> Wild how that's the case. But like, even if they don't, Something that Christians can gain from like reading Marxists and anarchists that do this type of like analysis of capitalism is um, just like you get to see like a really good description of the world and like what it looks like from this different angle. Right. Like if you're a Christian, you're interested in, you know, um, the least of these or um, people who have been exploited or people who are in um, really uh, other types of oppressive situations. Like if that's kind of a perspective you're interested in, um, Marxists and anarchists like know how to write about that kind of thing. They they like have the methods and they have the intuition to know where to look for them. So like if nothing else, even if you like disagree that all property should be like socialized or something, or that, um, you know, if you, if you, even if you agree or disagree with like some of like the more Marxist tenants that we'll talk about later, I suppose, um, people who like Marxists are really good at describing the world and describing the people like that Christians ought to really care about. Yeah. I think that's also a a good kind of way for us maybe to transition to talking about what socialism is because uh, there are multiple reactions to capitalism, just like there are multiple interpretations of what it is or uh, ways to sort of explain how it operates. Um, And I think it's actually really good to have a real conversation about what socialism is or isn't. Uh, and also to bring out like perspectives on socialism uh, and what it is or isn't. So, you know, what what do people who describe themselves as socialists say socialism is? And then what do people who are not socialists but still on the left or critical of capitalism say that socialism is? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, um, maybe like one kind of way to, to jump into this is to note that I mean, if you look at the news cycle at all, you can kind of tell that socialism is kind of like a floating signifier is the way that we might talk about it in philosophy. Like, it's a word that's not really tied to an extremely obvious referent. It seems to mean a lot of things. It doesn't really... uh, Like, okay, Bernie Sanders is... His whole campaign is sort of premised on being a democratic socialist, right? But he still believes in private property, uh, apparently. He doesn't really have any plans, as far as I know, in his platform to sort of socialize literally uh, everything, um, especially like massive industries or whatever. You know, he wants to regulate banks, not socialize banks. Um, But nevertheless, he describes himself as a socialist. So how can we kind of sort this out, Matt? Do you have any uh, initial sort of strategies for thinking (laughs) through the ambiguity of that term? Yeah, I think maybe I do. So uh when katie grams asked this very good question and i said um she so she says you know like what's socialism and i say it's when the workers own the means of production um because that's the good marxist answer that they teach you to say yeah. at uh marxist sunday school <laughs> um she fired back a tweet that was like okay cool i mean not i just fired back a tweet in a nice way because it was nice <laughs> anyway she said like well what do you think about then the um prevalence of or like confusion around um socialism as a term as it is represented by bernie sanders or aoc or somebody Mm -hmm. and i thought to myself well i guess it's like good because um it's kind of like a nice pr campaign (laughs) on the the one hand um and bad on the other hand because it like kind of leads to more confusion about like what socialism actually is and you end up thinking that like um well actually sweden is very socialist and uh cuba isn't or something so there's like i think good things and bad things about it because if uh bernie sanders or aoc or anyone else is all of a sudden very outspokenly uh socialist then maybe people will like you know get on board and then drift leftward or something um but also maybe not (laughs) anyways all that to say um like this confusion about like what socialism is or like the difference between being like a Bernie Sanders type of socialist and being like, uh, you know, and <laughs> sorry, uh, I'm trying to say this in a way that's like not just me like being mean. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the difference between a, a Bernie Sanders type socialist and an actual socialist or something <laughs> that's un- uncharitable, but whatever. I think maybe just has a lot to do with the types of intentions that people have um, being in like, you know, uh, with with that type of socialism, like. I know I know plenty of people who are in the DSA who are like very big 
Bernie Sanders type people who are like, yeah, like, let's get that dude elected and like get Medicare for everyone or whatever. Um, and, but then they also would be like, and that's, you know, not far enough. We should also um, enact a thousand more policies that uh, lean toward the socialization of, you know, private property, like actual socialism. But then there are people who I think would just stop with Medicare for all or something. Um, so I think that uh, to, to me, it just is about like what types of actual policy do people want to enact? Like what when is enough enough, I think, is maybe a question we can think of when it comes to socialism. Like mm. if you can be satisfied with the, with the socialization of like um, like health care, maybe you aren't you're not as socialist as uh, some other people are. Um, right. So I know that's kind of like a like a weird and like winding um, parsing out of those two things. But like, I, on the one hand, I don't really want to say people aren't socialists just because like they don't, um, subscribe to like every specific, um, thing that I would, but on the other hand, socialism does have to mean something. So, um, maybe there's, you know, how far you're willing to go, uh, in sort of like a spectrum of like socialism, uh, might be a way to start thinking about that. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, like, words are plastic and they change and whatever um but i think it is important to kind of think through like uh what we're really saying when we talk about socialism um i think that there's part of me that wants to say a lot of this sort of boils down to questions about how to get to a kind of communist future um because yeah. even many democratic socialists want a communist future but they disagree with other communists about how to get there right so um if you're uh i don't know like uh if you're like a leninist uh kind of communist that brand then you have specific ideas about what the end state of society is and very specific ideas about the strategy to get there uh and those rely primarily on revolution right it's not just reformist change it's revolutionary change rethinking society from the ground up uh and building it in such a way that leads toward communism uh if you're a more democratic socialist in the kind of like old socialist party of America sort of way. Um, that's not really what you're thinking about. You're thinking about how to sort of reform the institutions from within gradually over time in such a way that you end up in some kind of, uh, uh, more socialist or communist society. Um, there is a way in which they're sort of, you know, they, they belong to the same sort of family. Like they, they have a kinship together. Um, but they have some very important, like, family disagreements mm -hmm. uh so i don't know i always think of socialism as a tradition that helps me because just like christianity is a tradition um it's full of internal contradictions and disagreements and all that kind of thing um and some people you wouldn't really even want to kind of like seat at the same table uh, if you had to like put all that family together at a reunion um but nevertheless they've still all all got some of the same genes yeah i think that you're right uh, i like what you said kind of about the you know how do you how do you get to sort of like that uh more like socialist kind of society like that that's kind of a good differentiating um a, a good thing that might differentiate one type of socialist from another um that makes a lot of sense to me and you're right lenin has a lot of ideas about that and so does marx and so does like most so do most socialists in the history <laughs> in that big tradition of socialism i mean you know if you're not a leninist and you're like a left com or something like then you have some other weird ideas too about forming councils and like going on strike and lots of other things so yeah i think that i mean like i don't really identify as a leninist but i do think that there's a lot of good ideas in marxism leninism and uh, I think that we should, I think socialists should use them when they are applicable, just like I think they should use like, like democratic strategies when they're applicable as well. Because um, that's like what it means to be actually a good Marxist is to kind of understand the historical conditions and like fit things in together, you know, when you need to. Um, but still, like recognizing those um, different types of approaches to like political change, I think are really important in defining what we mean by socialism as a like a big term yeah i think that's right um and i guess i should also say all right the difference doesn't just stem from the strategy like there are different visions also of what the end would be uh among socialists and and communists more broadly uh but nevertheless uh why don't we try to parse a little bit of this out by going back to um our uh the the gospel of communism <laughs> the <laughs> communist manifesto yeah for sure uh any insight there yeah so much insight 
Um, <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll read this quote from the Communist Manifesto I picked out, and it tells us a little bit of something uh, about what Marx thought that transition might look like and maybe how we can think about socialism in light of that. So in the manifesto, Marx writes, The proletariat will use its political supremacy to wrest by degree all capital from the bourgeoisie, to centralize all instruments of production in the hands of the state, i.e. of the proletariat organized as ruling class, and to increase the total productive forces as rapidly as possible. Of course, in the beginning, this cannot be affected except by means of despotic inroads on the rights of property and on the conditions of the bourgeois production, by means and measures, therefore, which appear economically insufficient and untenable, but which in the course of movement outstrip themselves, necessitate further inroads upon the old social order, and are unavoidable as means entirely revolutionizing the mode of production. Okay, so um, Marx has some ideas about, like, what you should do um, or what what the what like socialists should do when they kind of like can take control. And uh, in this example here, I mean, you hear the language that's very clear what Marx has in mind. The proletariat will use its political supremacy to wrest by degree all capital from the bourgeoisie. So it's like uh, the, the proletariat has to take um, the means of production from the bourgeoisie. They have to sort of centralize all of those instruments into uh, the hands of the state. So that's the role of the state is the proletariat takes all of that uh, private property from the bourgeoisie and it centralizes it in the hands of the state which is going to kind of like work on behalf of the proletariat um so uh and and like it, uh the state should keep trying to appropriate all of the all of the stuff the, the bourgeoisie is trying to withhold so uh for marx in this one instance here in the manifesto the role of the state or like what that communist society should look like is uh, a kind of like a transitional period or something um, there's this other part in Marx that comes after this in the manifesto where Marx talks about like the withering of the state, like after the, the proletariat has, uh, seized control of the state apparatus and can take all of the capital from the bourgeoisie and they set up society just so, so that like everything is kind of working towards like social goods and, um, so that like the, the proletariat are the ones that actually own the means of production and they are socialized for the people in society. After that happens, like the actual state apparatus can start to wither away. Um, so it's kind of like, uh, it, it's kind of like an interesting idea that makes sense, right? Like you can't just say, um, sorry, there's a revolution and now we're doing communism and everyone's going to be okay with it. Right? Like, so Marx is a very much a realist on this point where he thinks that there has to be this kind of point in time where um, the proletariat takes everything and they set everything up and then they kind of like recede, like the state recedes away. Um, but uh, Marx never wrote down like how long that should be or what that should look <laughs> like or how you know when it's time or anything else like that, right? So uh, that's like the overview though that Marx gives of like um, what that transitional period looks like and what that might actually mean um, for socialists and like, it's a very different picture of the world than uh, Medicare for all. That's right. Like, don't get me wrong. I want, I want Medicare for all. Like that's, that's fine for me right now. I'd take it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, this is a good way to talk about some of the distinctions that communists in particular have with uh, certain people who call themselves socialists uh, these days, because like, um, from the communist perspective, the state should should continue to sort of appropriate things uh, as long as it can, right? Uh, whereas many socialists now, or people say that they're socialists are... I, 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 I'm not saying say that they're socialists in a way to be dismissive, just saying, like, admitting that that's what they call themselves. <laughs> um, uh, they want, um, you know, whatever. They want to take, like, the medical industry and make that uh, a, a national publicly owned uh, industry, very important and good. Um, but don't necessarily apply that same logic to other domains of society or other industries or in other countries that are often held up as sort of democratic socialist countries like in Scandinavia or something like that or even Venezuela and, and other places. Um, it's a similar case there where they've nationalized uh, or socialized many, many other industries, notably like the oil industry, especially in Norway and Venezuela in particular. Um, but they haven't nationalized everything else. Um, so 
you know, communists respond to that situation uh, by sort of hoping for and agitating for the continued uh, deprivatization of all industries because they assume that capitalism, that logic of accumulation we talked about earlier, um, is the kind of thing that always will create unjust uh, patterns in a society, no matter which uh, industry is operating by that logic. Yeah, that uh, sounds right to me. I don't know. So uh, <laughs> if if you're if you're a socialist in this like uh, in this like Marxist kind of way that we just talked about, you know, you're always kind of demanding more, right? Like there's always more that can be done. Um, and I think that's a really <laughs> it's kind of an interesting idea because it kind of, it sets up socialists uh, in this like Marxist sense to be like very whiny, like keep on giving <laughs> us your stuff, keep on giving us all your cheeseburgers. Uh, Tucker Carlson is right. Yeah, Tucker uh, we're Carlson. Whiny. The whiny left. <laughs> but uh, but anyways, I, I think like so you know um, Marx is talking about this here, and oh um, here's another good quote that kind of uh, paints the picture a little bit more too that will um, draw out some even further distinctions. So the Communist Manifesto, I don't know if you don't know, is written by Marx and Engels, but like mostly Marx. Um, but uh, Engels wrote this <laughs> other uh, essay called Origins of the Family, Private Property, and the State. And uh, in that essay, he says this about um, this transitional period in like socialism. He says, the society which organizes production anew on the basis of free and equal association of the producers will put the whole state machinery where it will then belong, into the Museum of Antiquities, next to the spinning wheel and the bronze axe. So like, I guess what's interesting to me about these things is that like, um, on on the one hand, like you could read, uh, you could get a very like sort of Leninist reading from these things that like, yeah, I mean, the state exists to keep ta- so that it keeps appropriating, um, private property from the bourgeoisie wherever it kind of presents itself, but like, um, the left com reading of these things is like, yeah, and then at, at some point the state goes away because it's bad and we don't need it anymore, and those two distinctions are really more interesting to me than I think like democratic socialism or something. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well. Since you brought it up, yeah. uh, let me bring out that good Leninist take. Yeah, do it. Get it. <laughs> um, yeah, so Lenin's State and Revolution, which we've talked about uh, or mentioned a little bit on the show before, when we talked about the Goethe program in the past, I think lends us some more insight here. Um, so the State and Revolution piece is kind of like a long commentary on the Goethe program uh, and some other stuff, but it's specifically dealing with the themes of its title, State and Revolution. How do you put these two things together or think of them together? And I think what's really fascinating about Lenin's approach here is that he uh, he tries to sort out this uh, what we've been calling this kind of transitional period, um, the state uh, state sponsored um, communism. Uh, he tries to sort that out in its relationship to the longer trajectory of the withering away of the state itself. Um, so Lenin too, you know, he like he wants to be an orthodox Marxist. He wants to uh, admit that Marx is right on that, that the state should wither away. Um, but the way it happens, uh, Lenin thinks people often kind of miss what Marx has to say. Uh, and I really like it because, I mean, Marx and Engels are not really dealing with the distinction between communists and socialists in the way that we do today. Um they did deal with it kind of a little bit, but like the situation was a lot different. I think Lenin is a lot closer to us and helps us answer it. So in State and Revolution, he says this. Um, so in the first phase of communist society, which is usually called socialism, bourgeois law is not abolished in its entirety, but only in part, only in proportion to the economic rev- revolution so far attained. That is only in respect to the means of production. Bourgeois law recognizes them as the private property of individuals Socialism converts them into common property. To that extent, and to that extent alone, bourgeois law disappears. So let me kind of contextualize this a little bit. What Lenin is saying is that in the Gotha program in Marx, he thinks that you can sort of find uh, two phases of communist society. Um, And he's not just like making that up, like Marx talks about that as well. And the first phase is the one that people nowadays sort of refer more to as socialism. The second phase is the one that's more kind of thought about as communism proper. Um, so Lenin is is wanting to actually kind of drive this distinction home uh, a little bit to, to sort of create um, some distance. So maybe I'll just read one more quote from the Gotha program to kind of contextualize this. We can talk about it a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so talking about that first phase, Marx says this. 
What we have to deal with here is a communist society not as it has developed on its own foundations, but on the contrary, just as it emerges from capitalist society, which is thus in every respect, economically, morally, and intellectually, still stamped with the birthmarks of the old society from whose womb it emerges. Um, and I think that idea of this kind of social society still being stamped by the birthmarks of this old society uh, that is what Lenin is saying people refer to as socialism. Uh, this thing that still retains a lot of capitalist structures, capitalist ways of thinking about things. And Lenin actually wants to sort of affirm that as a momentary phase, uh, but says we should keep on moving to the second phase, what Marx calls the higher phase of communism. Uh, anything in there strike you, Matt? Yeah, for sure. A ton, actually. Um, something I, uh, I was just thinking, uh, in my, in the left comm side of my brain for a minute, I was thinking like, <laughs> yeah, but like Lenin, uh, uh, well in the Soviet Union, it sure did last a pretty long time, um, <laughs> like this transitional stage, but then I kind of got this other piece, uh, in what Lenin said and it kind of makes some sense. So, uh, in that quote you just read, it says that bourgeois law is not abolished in its entirety, but only in part, only in proportion to the economic revolution so far attained. Which I think that little bit there gives you the kind of like difference in scope in which revolutions actually happen. So, you know, like the revolution isn't over when like the civil war ends or something or like when Lenin right. is in power and like the provisional government isn't like the revolution like keeps on going because it's constantly having to struggle against, uh, you know, the hegemony of capitalism uh, encroaching upon it. So um, this like I don't know, it's kind of hard uh it's kind of hard to think about a type of socialism or a revolution that doesn't have to defend itself in this way or have to, or like structure itself in this kind of like phase phase kind of way. Um, so I think that's a, I don't know. It's worth thinking about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think so too. I mean, I, uh, I don't have a very big uh, left com part of my brain, um, but it's a fair worry. It's a fair worry to kind of wonder what happens to the state given the history of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a fair worry because, like, um, like there there are some, like, very good, um, like, sort of, like, left com examples you can look to. Like, I mean, like, you know, the Paris Commune or something. Like, what happens when they didn't seize the state apparatus and they just kind of, like, were cool having the commune? Like, they got yeah. steamrolled. But then, like, right. there, are other, there are other situations, though, where, like, left communists have been able to kind of deal with this question um, of, like, the ongoing revolution in a lot of different ways. Like, the Zapatistas, like, they were willing to throw down and fight, and they did. And, like, you know they still have to kind of struggle for their um, the continuation of the revolution in different ways. So um, it seems like Lenin's right. <laughs> I'll go on record and I'll say it right here and now. <laughs> All right. I'm going to, I'm going to cite that one later. Um, well, maybe we could talk a little bit more too about the distinction between communism and socialism a little bit as well. So if we're, if we could draw a map here of where we've gone in the episode so far, we were talking about capitalism. Then we sort of started talking about socialism as a, or different strategies of socialism responding to capitalism. And now I think we can sort of maybe talk about how communism views socialism a little bit more. And I want to take one more quote from Lenin's Satan Revolution that I promise I won't quote it anymore. <laughs> but <laughs> I think okay. this is a really good uh, way of laying it out. So he says, the scientific distinction between socialism and communism is clear. What's usually called socialism was termed by Marx the first or lower phase of communist society. Insofar as the means of production become common property, the word communism is also applicable here, providing we do not forget that it's not complete communism. The great significance of Marx's explanations is that here, too, he consistently applies materialist dialectics, the theory of development, and regards communism as something which develops out of capitalism. Instead of scholastically invented, concocted definitions and fruitless disputes over words like what is socialism, what is communism, sorry, Lenin, uh, <laughs> Marx gives an analysis of what, what might be called the stages of the economic maturity of communism. So what Lenin is saying here is uh, we shouldn't kind of get bogged down by uh, debates about like what's truly socialist or truly communist, but instead see these things as part of the trajectory and history of communism. So the kind of Leninist way of looking at these things is instead of saying that, let's say, a place like Cuba is socialist and not really communist because there's still a significant state in Cuba, uh, Lenin is saying, well, it's still a communist state because it understands itself as being the first phase of communism. 
which is to say it's trying to build a world in which it could transition to the second phase of communism. Uh, it just isn't reasonable to assume that that could happen right now for a number of, of genuinely good reasons. Um, and I think that's actually a really useful way of looking at this, because uh, if you look at, say, a place like Norway or something like that, um, it maybe makes more sense to call that a socialist state or a state on the way to socialism or inflected by socialism or whatever, um, but not to call it a communist state because it doesn't really have an interest in, in moving to, in a communist direction. Right. Given um, given and, the historical like conditions, if, if they change so far as they could be a communist country, they wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so I don't know. That's the last quote I'll introduce from Lenin to help us out here. But I think it's a really good way of kind of uh, at least like splitting one more very important hair. Yeah, it's a super important hair, hair to split. One big hair. <laughs> <laughs> one one historical, historically significant size hair. Well, on that same point, I guess, like, I, I, I think what I like about that quote from Lenin that makes it make a lot of sense to me is that the idea that, like, okay, a communist state doesn't mean that they've achieved communism in some way, right? Like, because that's right. not how communism works. They It gives us this um, understanding that communism is a bigger idea than any given one country, um, even if it is Cuba. Um, so that makes me think uh, of this other quote from the German ideology, where uh, which is a, a thing from Marx, and he says some good stuff there. Um, so the German ideology, if you've never read it, uh, I wouldn't really suggest it. Um, if you're a philosophy person, it's very fun. It's like mostly him dunking on Hegel, which is awesome. I love that. Um, he, he dunks on Hegel and then he dunks on Hegel and then he invents sociology. So that's what, what the cool thing about it is. Um, anyways, there's a part later in the German ideology where he talks about communism and like what it is. And, um, I think it jives with a lot of what, uh, Lenin says in the quote from that team just read. So Marx says, communism is for us, not a state of affairs, which is to be established an ideal to which reality will have to adjust itself. We call communism the real movement which abolishes the present state of things. The conditions of this movement result from the premises now in existence. So, uh, just like you were saying, Dean, like, you know, Cuba is not a communist country because they've, like, they got, because they did communism. It's uh, a communist country because, like, it's kind of, like, setting up to be in that trajectory of communism. Um, and just like what Marx was saying here, too, like, communism isn't something that you just, like, obtain um, or you establish or something, um, but it's the movement that abolishes the present state of things. It's like this larger historical understanding um, that uh, is is way bigger than just like you know now or like um, or the the moment from uh, the moment a revolution happens to when a party takes power. It's bigger than than those things. It's the the like that that big arc of history that moves in a direction. Yeah, I think that's good. Um, and it helps, too, to kind of understand even the, the sort of negative or eschatological impulse that you pulled out in that quote. Yeah. Um, communism, yeah, abolishes the present state of things. Like, that. that's exactly what, like, Cuba is doing. If you understand, first of all, the present state of things being the, the Batista regime, but even now, the present state of things that's in Cuba. Communism is still trying to abolish that, right? It, it's, it's moving into a... a, a um, a different kind of future that that doesn't include, um, you know, being beset by imperialism or something like that. Yeah, and I I wonder this might be overstating it or something, and but maybe not. I don't know. It, it seems like there is a, there is a type of unity behind this type of communism, um, or like understanding, like you know, like okay, um, <laughs> so like in the last episode, uh, Sargon was talking about communists or whatever, and and then I was like, and like we are communists, so like okay, right? And there's like a difference between calling yourself a communist and being uh, calling yourself a socialist, and I think that in communism there's a sense of unity in which like all of these different types of communist projects are kind of like helping in abolishing that present state of things. Like right. if if you're like a Leninist and you know you're a communist you have a different idea maybe of like what some of those things, like the importance of some of those things. Um, then if you were like a left com or something and you were like the Zapatistas have it exactly right. But regardless of uh, those differences, they both are working to abolish the present state of things. So it seems like there is yeah. some type of, if, if you, if you want to, if you want to say that you're a communist, right, there's a sense of unity that underlies that in which even if like all of these projects, you don't exactly agree with them or you think that they could have done things differently or you don't like a part of it or whatever, like fine, like you should be critically in support of things though. Um, mm -hmm. Then like, you know, there's, there's this underlying sense of unity where all of these things are contributing towards the abolition of the present state of things. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That that actually, uh, <laughs> it's funny you say that. I don't know. I was just thinking about that question this week, and I feel like you answered it for me, so that's good. You're welcome. Um, yeah, thank you. I mean, uh, people should just be communists. They should stop being socialists. Like, what's the point? <laughs> because, like, so- yeah. Well, let me ask you to say more about that. Like, why? Why should someone be a communist and not a socialist? It's the same reason that someone should be like a Christian and not a Baptist. Like. <laughs> because like baptism like you know, like i'm a baptist like that's like small small potatoes man like cr- christians are about like the salvation of the universe and like defeating death and like all kinds of other stuff and like socialism is about like medicare for all but communism is about the abolition of reality in like a better different type of world right like it seems like it seems like the scope of those types of projects are way different dang uh I didn't know you were so uh, non-denominational. Um, <laughs> Shots fired at Baptist right now. <laughs> a real, a real um, non-denominational communist over here, though. <laughs> uh, non-denomcom. Um, <laughs> I. It's funny you say that because uh, Althusser, the French communist theorist, he um, famously uh, said that communism is Catholicism. Because Catholicism is uh, the word for universality. Yeah, and I think that's actually a really neat way of looking at it. Yeah, I feel like I might mean something a little bit different than Althusser does. Uh, remember, like, in episode 100 when I was just like, hey, everything's cool, you should be nice to your mom? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a different uh, different quality of universality than maybe uh, what Althusser has in mind, but still, I'm just fine. With it me. could be, but I, I think uh, he's trying to be playful with that idea of Catholicity, right? Yeah. That, like, um, this is the kind of thing that's supposed to be universal, um, whether or not it always is or something like that. Um, which is what like the Catholic Church says, right? That's why it's called that. The the one apostolic Catholic Church is supposed to be the the universal church, which is why it's the one church. It's just kind of this weird, uh, weird irony, I guess. Uh, and obviously, doesn't always uh, uh, achieve that since there are so many dang versions of Christianity. Um, but I think what you're saying about like we should be a Christian and not just a Baptist is kind of the the spirit of that idea in Althusser. Is that um, there's a, a kind of deeper meaning here uh, beyond just the sectarian disputes or something? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like the sectarian disputes are important. Like, I'm not. I don't think it's worth downplaying those things. Like, yeah. you know, like leftist infighting isn't all bad because sometimes people are wrong and they need to know they're wrong. But like at the same yeah. time, <laughs> you know, it it is it, it's how things get worked out. Like in, in that type of discourse, like you have to you have to have those types of disputes to to abolish stuff man it's dialectics god <laughs> man this is a uh, th- lenin is right it's dialectics you're like the most this is your most uh orthodox marxist episode I think, and all, so far but also go to church though <laughs> <laughs> that's right um all right well let me ask you to say a little bit more about this and then we can close in a second here but uh thinking all the way back to what you were saying about capitalism earlier yeah um when we think about the difference between why be a communist instead of a socialist in light of the problem of capitalism, even if we sort of struggled to find like a really obvious way of, of pulling that into like a simple definition, um, why should one be a communist and not a socialist given the problems of capitalism itself? I don't know why. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll give it a try. Well, I think, um, I think because that idea that Marx talks about in the Gotha program where, uh, that first phase of communism or what you could call socialism. Um, Lenin doesn't want to, but you could, uh, (laughs) that first phase is a, um, is stamped by all the birthmarks of capitalism, right? That's what Marx says. And I think the idea is like, you shouldn't really be content with that. Like the birthmarks of capitalism are bad. They, um, they're the kinds of things that continue to create problems in your society because they carry on the antagonisms that produced an unjust society in the first place. Um, I mean, this is one way that people have read the crisis in Venezuela. Uh, there are many, many, many reasons for it. And most of them are, I think, reducible to imperialism is very bad. Um, but also like, there are issues in Venezuela around certain industries that were not nationalized or where private capital has actively subverted the socialist project, uh, like in food production, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this is something that communists would point to and say, well, uh, 
it's not it's not to say that the Venezuelan project is bad or anything, but just to say that the the socialist side of it, uh, you can sort of see the cracks in the system because capital will always be able to um, subvert those kinds of projects. Because especially if you're a private food producer and you just refuse to to make food, uh, you go on a what's called a capital strike, you know, where capital just won't make anything. Um, well, not having food is a pretty big problem that will turn people against socialism mm. um, wrongly. But that's what will happen. Uh, and it, it was what is happening. So I think for me anyway, being a communist instead of a socialist is important because it helps to name the antagonisms that should not be allowed to persist uh, in society. Um, it, it, it isn't willing to settle to, with leaving some of those antagonisms in place, like modestly reformed. Yeah, that makes that is a very good answer. Um, well, Okay, so also going back to something, uh, a quote I read earlier, the Richard Gilmopolsky one, right? Recognizing that capitalism isn't only a political economy, but it is uh, a logic that kind of is pervasive. Right. Um, seems like a huge part of that insight from Lenin. Um, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know, like that Zizek, Frederick Jameson, wh- whoever thing, where it's like, you know, you can imagine the end of the world before you can imagine the end of capitalism. It's like... Right. Um, you know, it's worth being a communist to completely like change the way people think, (laughs) you know, like, uh, otherwise, uh, you know, you could have, you could have a socialist kind of economy or you could, you could have sort of more like social types of policies or whatever, but still it wouldn't sort of defeat the capitalist way of thinking about the world. Um, yeah, exactly. It's, but okay. And this is, okay. Here's a, here's a wild thing that, um, might be, bad to say but who knows i think that like for for me at least um the idea of being like that's why you should be a communist over uh over a socialist is also i think why it's really important for me to be a christian too because like it's uh there's a lot of things you know if you read jesus a really particular way with a very particular hermeneutic the one that we've talked about in the show before like you also kind of see different ways to think about the world than other other than like accumulation too you know like um, Jesus is a person who's not interested in that part of it. It's a it's a it's a, a an example of someone who's doing something radically different in society, um, lifting up people who um, the logic of accumulation would cast off to the side. So I think that communism is a good way of getting around like that mental block of like uh, the you know the birthmarks of capitalism. But I think Christianity, like you know, again read through this particular hermeneutic, does some of that same work. Yeah, you know, I think that's totally right. I mean, it's a both of these things, both communism and Christianity, are a training in your imagination, right? Yeah. Um, nobody has ever lived in a communist society the way that people like Marx and Lenin envision it. You know, a a post-industrial communism Mm -hmm. uh, is not a thing that has ever been on the planet. Uh, But you have ways of thinking about it and trying to get there. And it's the same, I think, with Christianity. You know, imagining a world where, uh, you know, it's the kingdom of God and there's no churches left anymore and everybody's just kind of, like, figured it out. Uh, That's something that nobody has ever lived in either, but something that hopefully we can imagine and and strive toward. I think that's really helpful to see it as a a sort of training in in your imaginative capacity or something. Yep. Man, communism gets me pumped. It Love gets me it. excited, I feel like. It's so good. It's so good to be it's a so communist, good. though. <laughs> you can take that to the bank. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Magnificast. We've also got some new-ish stickers up at Redbubble. Uh, just search the Magnificast there. You can see a few of them. we got a Bear That Fruit sticker hanging out now, um, along with a bunch of other ones. Uh, let's see, what else? You can find us on Twitter at the Magnificast. <laughs> you can email us at themagnificast at gmail.com. Uh, as always, our music is by Amore Armstrong and The Illogical Spoon. See you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord.